Chapters 41 through 50 of Against Celsus, Book 5 by Origen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Let us notice the charges which are next advanced by Celsus, in which there is exceedingly little that has reference to the Christians, as most of them refer to the Jews. His words are, quote, If, then, in these respects, the Jews were carefully to preserve their own law, they are not to be blamed for so doing, but those persons, rather, who have forsaken their own usages and adopted those of the Jews. And if they pride themselves on it as being possessed of superior wisdom and keep aloof from intercourse with others as not being equally pure with themselves, they have already heard that their doctrine concerning heaven is not peculiar to them, but to pass by all others is one which has long ago been received by the Persians as Herodotus somewhere mentions, for they have a custom, he says, of going up to the tops of the mountains and of offering sacrifices to Jupiter, giving the name of Jupiter to the whole circle of the heavens. And I think, continues Celsus, that it makes no difference whether you call the highest being Zeus, or Zen, or Adonai, or Seboeth, or Amun, like the Egyptians, or Papias, like the Scythians, nor would they be deemed at all holier than others in this respect, that they observe the rite of circumcision, for this was done by the Egyptians and Colchians before them, nor because they abstain from swine's flesh, for the Egyptians practiced abstinence not only from it, but from the flesh of goats and sheep and oxen and fishes as well. While Pythagoras and his disciples do not eat beans, nor anything that contains life. It is not probable, however, that they enjoy God's favor, or are loved by him differently from others, or that angels were sent from heaven to them alone, as if they had had allotted to them some region of the blessed. For we see both themselves and the country of which they were deemed worthy. Let this band, then, take its departure, after paying the penalty of its vaunting, not having a knowledge of the great God, but being led away and deceived by the artifices of Moses, having become his pupil to no good end. end quote. It is evident that, by the preceding remarks, Celsus charges the Jews with falsely giving themselves out as the chosen portion of the supreme God above all other nations, and he accuses them of boasting because they gave out that they knew the great God, although they did not really know him, but were led away by the artifices of Moses, and were deceived by him, and became his disciples to no good end. Now we have, in the preceding pages, already spoken in part of the venerable and distinguished polity of the Jews, when it existed amongst them as a symbol of the city of God, and of his temple, and of the sacrificial worship offered in it, and at the altar of sacrifice. But if any one were to turn his attention to the meaning of the legislator, and to the constitution which he established, and were to examine the various points relating to him, and compare them with the present method of worship among other nations, there are none which he would admire to a greater degree, because, so far as can be accomplished among mortals, everything that was not of advantage to the human race was withheld from them, and only those things which are useful bestowed. And for this reason, they had neither gymnastic contests, nor scenic representations, nor horse races, 
nor were there among them women who sold their beauty to any one who wished to have sexual intercourse without offspring, and to cast contempt upon the nature of human generation. And what an advantage was it to be taught from their tender years to ascend above all visible nature, and to hold the belief that God was not fixed anywhere within its limits, but to look for him on high and beyond the sphere of all bodily substance. And how great was the advantage which they enjoyed in being instructed almost from their birth and as soon as they could speak in the immortality of the soul and in the existence of courts of justice under the earth and in the rewards provided for those who have lived righteous lives. These truths, indeed, were proclaimed in the veil of fable to children and to those whose views of things were childish, while to those who were already occupied in investigating the truth and desirous of making progress therein, these fables, so to speak, were transfigured into the truths which were concealed within them. And I consider that it was in a manner worthy of their name as the portion of God, that they despised all kinds of divination, as that which bewitches men to no purpose, and which proceeds rather from wicked demons than from anything of a better nature, and sought the knowledge of future events in the souls of those who, owing to their high degree of purity, received the spirit of the supreme God." But what need is there to point out how agreeable to sound reason and unattended with injury either to master or slave was the law that one of the same faith should not be allowed to continue in slavery more than six years? The Jews, then, cannot be said to preserve their own law in the same points with the other nations, for it would be censurable in them and would involve a charge of insensibility to the superiority of their law if they were to believe that they had been legislated for in the same way as the other nations among the heathen. And although Celsus will not admit it, the Jews nevertheless are possessed of a wisdom superior not only to that of the multitude, but also to those who have the appearance of philosophers, because those who engage in philosophical pursuits after the utterance of the most venerable philosophical sentiments fall away into the worship of idols and demons, whereas the very lowest Jew directs his look to the supreme God alone, and they do well, indeed, so far as this point is concerned, to pride themselves thereon, and to keep aloof from the society of others as accursed and impious. And would that they had not sinned and transgressed the law, and slain the prophets in former times, and in these latter days conspired against Jesus, that we might be in possession of a pattern of a heavenly city which even Plato would have sought to describe, although I doubt whether he could have accomplished as much as was done by Moses and those who followed him who nourished a, quote, chosen generation and a holy nation, end quote dedicated to God, with words free from all superstition. But as Celsus would compare the venerable customs of the Jews with the laws of certain nations, let us proceed to look at them. He is of the opinion, accordingly, that there is no difference between the doctrine regarding heaven and that regarding God, and he says that, quote, the Persians, like the Jews, offer sacrifices to Jupiter upon the tops of the mountains, end quote. 
not observing that, as the Jews were acquainted with one God, so they had only one holy house of prayer, and one altar of whole burnt offerings, and one censer for incense, and one high priest of God. The Jews, then, had nothing in common with the Persians, who ascend the summits of their mountains, which are many in number, and offer up sacrifices which have nothing in common with those which are regulated by the Mosaic Code, in conformity to which the Jewish priests, quote, served unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, end quote, explaining enigmatically the object of the law regarding the sacrifices and the things of which these sacrifices were the symbols. The Persians, therefore, may call the whole circle of heaven Jupiter, but we maintain that the heaven is neither Jupiter nor God, as we indeed know that certain beings of a class inferior to God have ascended above the heavens and all visible nature. And in this sense, we understand the words, quote, Praise God, ye heaven of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. End quote. As Celsus, however, is of opinion that it matters nothing whether the highest being be called Jupiter, or Zen, or Adonai, or Seboeth, or Amun, as the Egyptians term him, or Papias, as the Scythians entitle him, let us discuss the point for a little, reminding the reader, at the same time of what has been said above upon this question, when the language of Celsus led us to consider the subject. And now we maintain that the nature of names is not, as Aristotle supposes, an enactment of those who impose them. For the languages which are prevalent among men do not derive their origin from men, as is evident to those who are able to ascertain the nature of the charms which are appropriated by the inventors of the languages differently, according to the various tongues and to the varying pronunciations of the names on which we have spoken briefly in the preceding pages, remarking that when those names which in a certain language were possessed of a natural power were translated into another, they were no longer able to accomplish what they did before when uttered in their native tongues. And the same peculiarity is found to apply to men, for if we were to translate the name of one who was called from his birth by a certain appellation in the Greek language into the Egyptian or Roman or any other tongue, we could not make him do or suffer the same things which he would have done or suffered under the appellation first bestowed upon him. Nay, even if we translated into the Greek language the name of an individual who had been originally invoked in the Roman tongue, we could not produce the result which the incantation professed itself capable of accomplishing had it preserved the name first conferred upon him. And if these statements are true, when spoken of the names of men, what are we to think of those which are transferred, for any cause whatever, to the deity? For example, something is transferred from the name Abraham when translated into Greek, and something is signified by that of Isaac, and also by that of Jacob. And accordingly, if any one, either in an invocation or in swearing an oath, were to use the expression, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he would produce certain effects, either owing to the nature of these names or to their powers, since even demons are vanquished and become submissive to him who pronounces these names. Whereas if we say, the God of the chosen father of the echo, and the God of laughter, and the God of him who strikes with the heel, 
the mention of the name is attended with no result, as is the case with other names possessed of no power. And in the same way, if we translate the word Israel into Greek or any other language, we shall produce no result, but if we retain it as it is and join it to those expressions through which such as are skilled in these matters think it ought to be united, there would then follow some result from the pronunciation of the word which would accord with the professions of those who employ such invocations. And we may say the same also of the pronunciation of Seboeth, a word which is frequently employed in incantations, for if we translate the term into Lord of Hosts, or Lord of Armies, or Almighty, different acceptations of it having been proposed by the interpreters, we shall accomplish nothing. Whereas, if we retain the original pronunciation, we shall, as those who are skilled in such matters, maintain, produce some effect. And the same observation holds good of Adonai. If then neither Seboeth nor Adonai, when rendered into what appears to be their meaning in the Greek tongue, can accomplish anything, how much less would be the result among those who regard it as a matter of indifference whether the highest being be called Jupiter or Zen or Adonai or Seboeth? It was for these and similar mysterious reasons with which Moses and the prophets were acquainted, that they forbade the name of other gods to be pronounced by him who bethought himself of praying to the one supreme God alone, or to be remembered by a heart which had been taught to be pure from all foolish thoughts and words. And for these reasons we should prefer to endure all manner of suffering rather than acknowledge Jupiter to be God. For we do not consider Jupiter and Seboeth to be the same, nor Jupiter to be at all divine, but that some demon, unfriendly to men and to the true God, rejoices under this title. And although the Egyptians were to hold Amen before us under threat of death, we would rather die than address him as God, it being a name used in all probability in certain Egyptian incantations in which this demon is invoked. And although the Scythians may call Papaeus the supreme god, yet we will not yield our assent to this, granting, indeed, that there is a supreme deity, although we do not give the name Papaeus to him as his proper title, but regard it as one which is agreeable to the demon to whom was allotted the desert of Scythia, with its people and its language. He, however, who gives God his title in the Scythian tongue, or in the Egyptian, or in any language in which he has been brought up, will not be guilty of sin. Now the reason why circumcision is practiced among the Jews is not the same as that which explains its existence among the Egyptians and Colchians, and therefore it is not to be considered the same circumcision. And as he who sacrifices does not sacrifice to the same God, although he appears to perform the rite of sacrifice in a similar manner, and he who offers up prayer does not pray to the same divinity, although he asks the same things in his supplication, so, in the same way, if one performs the rite of circumcision, it by no means follows that it is not a different act from the circumcision performed upon another. For the purpose, and the law, and the wish of him who performs the rite, place the act in a different category. 
but that the whole subject may be still better understood, we have to remark that the term for righteousness is the same among all the Greeks, but righteousness is shown to be one thing according to the view of Epicurus, and another according to the Stoics, who deny threefold division of the soul, and a different thing again according to the followers of Plato, who hold that righteousness is the proper business of the parts of the soul. And so, also, the courage of Epicurus is one thing, who would undergo some labors in order to escape from a greater number, and a different thing, that of the philosopher of the Porsche, who would choose all virtue for its own sake, and a different thing still, that of Plato, who maintains that virtue itself is the act of the irascible part of the soul, and who assigns to it a place about the breast. And so, circumcision will be a different thing according to the varying opinions of those who undergo it. But on such a subject, it is unnecessary to speak on this occasion in a treatise like the present, for whoever desires to see what led us to the subject can read what we have said upon it in the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Although the Jews, then, pride themselves on circumcision, they will separate it not only from that of the Colchians and Egyptians, but also from that of the Arabian Ishmaelites. And yet, the latter was derived from their ancestor Abraham, the father of Ishmael, who underwent the rite of circumcision along with his father. The Jews say that the circumcision performed on the eighth day is the principal circumcision, and that which is performed according to circumstances is different, and probably it was performed on account of the hostility of some angel towards the Jewish nation, who had the power to injure such of them as were not circumcised, but was powerless against those who had undergone the right. This may be said to appear from what is written in the book of Exodus, where the angel before the circumcision of Eliezer was able to work against Moses, but could do nothing after his son was circumcised. And when Zipporah had learned this, she took a pebble and circumcised her child, and is recorded according to the reading of the common copies to have said, quote, The blood of my child's circumcision is stayed. End quote. But according to the Hebrew text, quote, A bloody husband art thou to me. End quote. For she had known the story about a certain angel having power before the shedding of the blood, but who became powerless through the blood of circumcision. For which reason the words were addressed to Moses, quote, A bloody husband art thou for me. End quote. But these things, which appear rather of a curious nature, and not level to the comprehension of the multitude, I have ventured to treat at such length. And now I shall only add, as becomes a Christian, one thing more, and shall then pass on to what follows. For this angel might have had power, I think, over those of the people who were not circumcised, and generally over all who worshipped only the Creator, and this power lasted so long as Jesus had not assumed a human body. But when he had done this, and had undergone the rite of circumcision in his own person, all the power of the angel over those who practice the same worship, but are not circumcised, was abolished. For Jesus reduced it to naught by the power of his unspeakable divinity. 
and therefore his disciples are forbidden to circumcise themselves and are reminded by the apostle, quote, If ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. End quote. But neither do the Jews pride themselves upon abstaining from swine's flesh, as if it were some great thing, but upon their having ascertained the nature of clean and unclean animals, and the cause of the distinction, and of swine being classed among the unclean. And these distinctions were signs of certain things until the advent of Jesus, after whose coming it was said to his disciple, who did not yet comprehend the doctrine concerning these matters, but who said, quote, Nothing that is common or unclean hath entered into my mouth. What God hath cleansed, call not thou common. End quote. It therefore in no way affects either the Jews or us that the Egyptian priests abstain not only from the flesh of swine, but also from that of goats and sheep and oxen and fish. But since it is not that which entereth into the mouth that defiles a man, and since meat does not commend us to God, we do not set great store on refraining from eating, nor yet are we induced to eat from a gluttonous appetite. And therefore, so far as we are concerned, the followers of Pythagoras, who abstain from all things that contain life, may do as they please. Only observe the different reason for abstaining from things that have life on the part of the Pythagoreans and our ascetics. For the former abstain on account of the fable about the transmigration of souls, as the poet says, quote, And some one lifting up his beloved son will slay him after prayer. Oh, how foolish he! End quote. We, however, when we do abstain, do so because, quote, we keep under our body and bring it into subjection, end quote, and desire, quote, to mortify our members that are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, end quote, and we use every effort to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Celsus, still expressing his opinion regarding the Jews, says, quote, it is not probable that they are in great favor with God, or are regarded by him with more affection than others, or that angels are sent by him to them alone, as if to them had been allotted some region of the blessed. For we may see both the people themselves and the country of which they were deemed worthy. End quote. We shall refute this by remarking that it is evident that this nation was in great favor with God from the fact that the God who presides over all things was called the God of the Hebrews, even by those who were aliens to our faith. And because they were in favor with God, they were not abandoned by him. But although few in number, they continued to enjoy the protection of the divine power, so that in the reign of Alexander the Macedon, they sustained no injury from him, although they refused, on account of certain covenants and oaths, to take up arms against Darius. They say that on that occasion the Jewish high priest, clothed in his sacred robe, received obeisance from Alexander who declared that he had beheld an individual arrayed in this fashion, who announced to him in his sleep that he was to be the subjugator of the whole of Asia. Accordingly, we Christians maintain that, quote, 
It was the fortune of that people in a remarkable degree to enjoy God's favor and to be loved by him in a way different from others, end quote. But that this economy of things and this divine favor were transferred to us after Jesus had conveyed the power which had been manifested among the Jews to those who had become converts to him from among the heathen. And for this reason, although the Romans desired to perpetuate many atrocities against the Christians in order to ensure their extermination, they were unsuccessful, for there was a divine hand which fought on their behalf, and whose desire it was that the word of God should spread from one corner of the land of Judea throughout the whole human race. End of chapters 41 through 50 of Against Celsus, Book 5 by Origen, read by David Ronald.